Welcome to Soulful Insights, conversations exploring the synergy of psychology, emotion and spirit. I'm Ruth Caterellis, psychologist, writer and performer. And I'm Rebecca Harris, author, psychotherapist and educational consultant. These conversations are based on our studies, observations and personal experiences. Take what resonates, leave the rest. All right, welcome to another episode of Soulful Insights and we'd like to acknowledge that we're coming to you today from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I'd like to acknowledge elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Now today we are going to talk about families of origin and I'm going to start by asking you a question, Ruth. Why is it that we explore family of origin in therapy? Primarily because all of our patterns for relating are set in place when we're children. Our relationships that we have within the family structure, with our parents, with our siblings, form the basis of the future relationships we will have. And so when a client comes to therapy and is identifying a problem or an issue that they've got in a particular relationship, be it with a parent, a child, a partner, a friend, a boss, work colleagues, often the origins of those patterns we see have begun in childhood and are repeating unconsciously. So we always look there to start with. Has that been your experience too? Yeah, yep, absolutely. That's been my experience personally, as well as noting that it's also other people's experiences. And these patterns begin, well, probably pre-birth even, as the uh, delicate brain structures are being formed and they operate within us unconsciously often and so in therapy that's often the place that you first realize that there's a pattern and that can be a bit of a revelation sometimes. I think you're right sometimes we can swear black and blue that we'll never choose a partner that's got those particular qualities and we can start a relationship going completely very very different and then sometimes maybe six months in, a year in, two years in, suddenly those patterns that we've brought in and their patterns start becoming clear between us. And unless we do know what they are, which is why it is so revelatory when you start to unpack them and you have a look at the stuff that's in between you, you go, oh, I'm bringing my childhood stuff in. You are too. Let's see if we can clear that and shift all of that. I think it's important that you mentioned the brain in terms of the development of ourselves and the adult that we are to become. Well, not even just the adult, the child, the teenager, and then the adult, because when we are born, our brains are undeveloped. It's those early years that form the connections between our neurons, the axions, the dendrite, all of those neural pathways are established and we know that any kind of tension, any kind of stress, as you identified before, even in utero, if our mother is undergoing a stressful situation, is angry, is upset for whatever reason, we absorb those emotions. 
And so those early years are incredibly important in terms of looking at the way that our brain function develops. And so much brain development occurs in relationships. And I don't know that we always talk about that when it comes to brain development, but when we work with or when we are just around infants and little babies, you can see it happening. And it's quite fascinating the way that you can watch those connections happening in the brain when you're with little babies, the way that they mirror your face and the way that they are so responsive to the emotion of whoever is holding them, which is why sometimes you can waltz in as uh, not a parent but a friend or an auntie or someone and settle a baby really easily because you're really chill. Uh, It's nice when you can impress people with those baby skills. Yeah, that development that is occurring in relation is so important and as we've identified, it's played out again and again in relationships and our brains love patterns And we are wired for confirmation bias. And so when we have internal perceptions of who we are, what we think of ourselves, we'll seek out confirmation of that again and again. And we seek that out in the relationships around us. And often I think we'll discard information to the contrary. And that's important, isn't it? Because if the information that we've got as a child is negative... It's no different in lots of ways. We still hold on to that as a pattern. So if we get messages about being stupid or about being foolish or that we're lazy or slow or whatever, it's really difficult then to actually have somebody come in and tell us that we're beautiful and that we're clever. So I guess fundamentally what we're saying is that your sense of yourself, not only your relationships with others, but your sense of yourself is being formed in those early years So that confirmation bias can be impacted, be it positive or negative affirmation. And so that becomes significant when we're looking at young people, teenagers, people in their 20s or 30s who are holding on to a a sense of this is who I am that may not be in any way accurate. It's the fact that they've been told this is who you are. They've absorbed that. And so, again, they, as you said, looking for patterns to reinforce that sense of belief and parents will give it, teachers will give it, society will often give it. And it so often happens in families, doesn't it, where there are stories that exist about the individuals within the family and who knows where they start, but they do get reinforced again and again, you know, just a perception of even if it's something like being clumsy you know, oh, there you go again and everyone's noticing every time you're the kid who knocks over their glass of juice or whatever. Yeah. You know, the stories just get reinforced and we retell them and, you know, they become then for fact, whether they're fact or not, because we believe them and they're reinforced. And they can become something that we really dislike about ourselves. So I'm going to speak personally for a second. I was always told as a kid I was too sensitive Now, I grew up in a pretty volatile house, so there was a lot of emotion, not much of it very gentle. My response to that was that I was a kid who cried a lot and I cried over animals and I cried when I watched a movie. So there was a lot of kind of laughter at my expense. And even at school, if something upset me, it was virtually impossible for me to not. So I really hated that about myself for many years until I realised that actually sensitivity is an asset being able to feel 
highs and lows is not, does it make traveling through the world a little bit more complicated sometimes, but I don't see it as detrimental anymore. So we do get those messages about who we are and who we're supposed to be. When we talk about raising children, I think it's really important to be aware that there are certain conditions under which an infant brain develops optimally. And they are talking to a child when there is enough laughter in the home and with the child, when the child is, has enough touch, patted, picked up, cuddled, played with physically, and also when there is an absence, ideally, of huge levels of stress. Under those conditions, our brain develops in a way that's perhaps less disjointed or distracted, if you like, and consequently that also impacts our relationship with ourselves. Yeah, I think that that idea of what a baby or an infant or a child needs has changed from generation to generation and that sense that parenting really is a series of jobs that need doing, feed baby, clean the baby, <laughs> change the baby's nappy. We're developing more and more to understand that little people need connections and their desire for connection and attachment needs to be valued because it is really important. Historically, children should be seen and not heard. You know, generations have been brought up in different ways and it's interesting to reflect on each generation and um, and the things that have changed around what's appropriate for parenting and the way that we view children and childhood. I think that's really true because it's really the perceptions, isn't it, that have changed. It's not what human beings have needed because no. we are absolutely hardwired to desire connection. The human motivation is about connecting with others, finding love and being loved and being acknowledged and accepted. But you're right, in terms of different periods of history, my mother told a story about my eldest sibling when he was an infant, and this was mid-50s, he was unwell and he had a dummy and my mum took him to hospital. The dummy was removed, the nurse took him from my mother's arms and just walked away with him and didn't see him for a week. We would not do that now because there is no way that that kind of separation does not do an infant damage. So thankfully we have learnt, at least in some respects, but I think there are still practices that we do engage in in which the child's emotional response is still not given the significance that it should be for their sense of their security and their safety in the world. Yeah, and as we're talking about connection, we are hardwired to connect and children will seek connection over safety. So that connection with the parent is more important than feeling safe because that is how we're built. And so you can see how this relationship to self and others is just reinforced with the continual call to connect and yeah, absolutely. I think everyone parents in relation to how they were parented, whether it's to say, 
I'm never going to do that thing that my parents did with me or whether it's that unconscious understanding that this is just how things are done. So I guess in some ways change can be slow and so even though we are learning more about brain development and more about the importance of connection being healthy and positive and attachment and children's emotional needs being met It's not always quick and families live in societies as well and there are societal norms I think too that sometimes go against those ideas of prioritising connection and attachment above other things. Some really important points, I think, there, Beck. The other thing, I think those patterns, sometimes you will see it in clients who might come in maybe using discipline, physical discipline, with their children or they've been disciplined physically. There can be quite a defensiveness around that as a practice. Sometimes clients will say, well, it didn't hurt me. And I would beg to differ because when we use physical violence against a child, we are teaching them, one, that their physical body and space can be violated, but also that the people in their lives who are supposed to be the ones who are administering care and safety and nurturance are physically hurting them. Yeah, I think it's such a classic, isn't it, to say, well, it did me no harm because how do we know? How do we know? Uh, Sometimes we do. You know, I think about uh, when my children were primary school age and being at school pick up and having people say, oh, my kids speak to me in a way I never would have spoken to my parents. And I remember saying to someone, were you scared of your parents? Well, yeah. Well, there's your answer. You want your kids to be scared of you? (laughs) They'll do what you want, probably, if you can drum up enough fear. But if you don't want that, then you're getting something different. So, yeah, it is, it is such a defensive go-to, which is understandable to say it didn't harm me. It can also be something, of course, in families where we're bringing up our children that, of course, our parents are likely to feel defensive about some of the things that we might be doing for that same reason. It did you no harm. But it is really clear we don't have an excuse now. We know what is harmful. And we also know, and we've mentioned this before, that children infants, babies, rather than believing their caregiver, their safe person, person that's keeping them alive, would harm them, they will internalise and believe instead that they deserve anything negative coming their way. So that in itself just lets us know that it's harmful. And so sometimes in therapy when we're talking about the family of origin, it is some of those beliefs about their value, clients' value that we need to shift because every child is valuable. That should be a given. It doesn't necessarily mean that every child is treated in a way that makes them feel like they have value and it's a really important differentiation. I think the other importance about the way that we're raised is It not only shapes our sense of ourselves, but it's really difficult for a human being to learn empathy if they haven't been treated with empathy. Mm. It's hard to learn how to love if the love you received was delivered in a way that did not feel at all loving. And there are parents who do operate from, and I'm going to use the word subhuman because It is so devoid of care and we often 
parent in a way that we've been parented until we really consciously acknowledge the damage that was done. And that's not always an easy thing to do, particularly when we are taught that the family is everything. Blood is thicker than water. You're supposed to be safe in your family and challenging that well-established fable is important. Now, it might not be a fable for everybody. For some people, their experience of it may well be that, but for many, it's not. Yeah, and it is absolutely well-established and we see that as a narrative in books and film and things aimed at children and you can imagine that it is confusing when your experience doesn't match. And so often in our families, depending on what sort of society we're brought up in, I guess, we experience our own family and we don't intimately experience other people's families. And so, again, this is why the family of origin is so important because that's our experience and unless we're spending large amounts of time intimately in other families, we don't know that the way our family operates is not necessarily the way every family operates. And I can think of many examples where people have identified that something in their family that retrospectively is quite damaging, like verbal abuse, for example, wasn't normal or typical, that it wasn't happening in other people's families. And of course, we would assume as a baby, an infant, a child growing up, that what we're experiencing in our household is what happens in other households. So I think it's just an indication of how bedded down as a narrative it is until we go out and experience other things. And I think often that experience happens, doesn't it, at maybe late primary school or during secondary school where kids do start to talk a little bit more about what's going on in their homes and they start to compare stories and identify differences between them. And for some kids, that's a time where shame can kick in because they realise that actually what is happening in their home is not the norm. And it can bring with it a real sense of discomfort and embarrassment and distress around their family situation. And so sometimes a closing down of that communication as well. Yeah, I just have a memory of a child I was working with who must have been about six disclosing to me physical violence at home and I said to the child that's not okay it's not legal and it's not good for you and it's not all right that that's happening and the child's response being very much like what well I'm gonna tell my mum that because she obviously doesn't know (laughs) just thought what a kind of a beautiful response in absolutely yeah and possibly true I hope they had some (laughs) success Sometimes I'll use that in therapy and just say, if you were to walk out onto the street and make a decision to hit somebody, you'd be charged with assault. But somehow because the person that you're hitting is, in quotation marks, yours and smaller than you, sometimes that makes it okay and clearly it's not okay. That brings me to another point around what we learn about in childhood, which we often have to work on later is around boundaries. If we have 
parents who don't respect our boundaries or siblings who don't respect our boundaries or in some ways our physical being is violated or emotionally somebody else is making all the decisions about what we wear, what we eat, what we think. We don't develop a really healthy sense of our own boundaries and therefore those lines get really, really murky when we're then later relating to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've definitely seen a lot of that and the, you know, the parents who are trying to anticipate every need a child has and try trying to eliminate any barriers that they might face is another example of boundary crossing too. And I wonder if there's a, perhaps more of that happening than there was in the past. But certainly I see that when I witness parents who are like that and you can see the intent is good and caring, but the impact is not in the end caring because we have children with no resilience, no capacity to see themselves as a being in the world who can manage and children can. Children Mm. can manage a lot of things and they get sent off to school with absolutely no capacity to cope in some instances. Mm. What I'm hearing in that is that the development of confidence and that sense of a separate awareness to our parents or to our caregivers is really important. So that being able to identify your own needs, I'm hungry now, I want to eat. I want to eat this. I don't want to eat that. And I know that that complicates things for families in family life. However, sometimes being able to slow things down and make those concessions, if you're trying to support the building of an autonomous, confident individual that they do have the right to choose is important. So things like autonomy in decision-making, what do I want to wear, bodily autonomy, you're not going to touch me or you're not going to insist that I sit on the knee of that person at Christmas dressed in red if I really don't want to or you're not going to insist that I give so-and-so a cuddle when I don't feel that that's what I want. That's really important in terms of the young person developing boundaries. And having the capacity to even know what you want. And I think that's the thing about, as you're saying, like, am I hungry? Am I hot? Am I thirsty? Like those sorts of things, if someone's anticipating a child's needs all the time, they don't even learn those things. And then if you don't know what it feels like to feel thirsty because someone's always got a, a drink ready before you need it, then it's also hard. So those sensations, if you don't know what sensations mean, then you also struggle to connect with emotion because emotion exists as sensation as well and in our body. And so without those skills, it's very hard to connect how we feel, what we want, and then also what happens when we don't get what we need. And being able to deal with that as well. You said something before that made me think about the reactions that sometimes we have when we've been raised in a particular way, that sometimes in our parenting we'll go almost the opposite directions. Perhaps we were raised in a way that was so strict that we had no control and all decisions were made and we weren't allowed to go out with friends, etc. And then when we're parenting we do the opposite and we say no restrictions, do what you want. The problem with both of those is that we give a message that's pretty well the same is that you're not important because if I'm restricting everything that you do or I'm allowing you to do anything you want with no sense of boundary, 
that message still is, you're not important. You can do anything. I don't really care. And so we need to instill healthy boundaries and they're in our relationships as well. You know, do I read somebody's diary? No, it's theirs. As adults, sometimes you might have issues with so-and-so was reading my mobile phone. It's an intrusion. And so the challenges in establishing those boundaries usually were established in childhood. I want to introduce a quote here by Steffi Wagner, which says, pain will travel through families until someone is brave enough to feel it. What do you think about that, Beck? I really like it because I think it speaks to the way that things are passed down and the way that however it is that one copes with difficult things, difficult emotions, painful experiences is modelled to the next generation. I think it does bring us to attachment theory and attachment styles that we pass on. Even if we do parenting differently, often we still have a particular way of relating to others that is similar to the way that our parents related to us and then the way that we relate to our children. So I find that quite fascinating because on the outside often it does look different, but when you dig down a little bit, there are the patterns that are being repeated. Interesting to note that sort of pre attachment theory that has been around for quite a while, their understanding was really that children just needed their physical needs met. Attachment theory brought in the idea that emotional needs were important too and attachment theory sort of divides us all up into one of four categories that in a simplified manner can be described as securely attached, anxiously attached, avoidantly attached or disorganised attachment. And that theory is still used pretty widely today and often in therapy. It is also pretty reductive (laughs) and worth noting that, but I guess what it represents is patterns of relating. So, you know, the anxiously attached person might be the one inclined to read someone's text messages because (laughs) of their fear of being left Mm. or fear of not being loved. They might be the ones who are checking constantly but you know but do you love me (laughs) maybe setting little tests to make sure or experiencing high levels of jealousy whereas perhaps a more avoidant attached person might be in a self-protective mode a lot of the time not quite willing to show their vulnerability always keeping a little bit of distance And I think there are, in recent times, been lots of books written about relationships and the way our attachment styles play out in relationships, which is pretty much what we're talking about. But, uh, yeah, interesting just to to delve a little bit sometimes into those sort of categories and and the research behind it. And I'm interested to see where it goes next Mm. too. I do find it fascinating because that research basically started in the early 50s, didn't it? Mm. And some people definitely have tendencies more towards a particular type of attachment, but we've all got all of those operating at different times. So it's really good to isolate the incident and have a look at what's happening there, what what are our fears that are being activated that make us avoid or want to run, where are those commitment issues potentially, you know, where is my need to chase being activated if that's what's happening for you and having a look at them. We're very much, I think, at a time in exploring human behaviour where we want to categorise and 
I think sometimes in doing that, we miss the subtleties and the nuances of some of the dynamics that are, are going on. But I think as a body of work, it was incredibly interesting. I agree. Yeah. And did teach us a lot about the development of babies' emotions and what it was that they were responding to in terms of caregivers. Yeah, in that regard, absolutely useful and useful for us to um, think about it in terms of our relationships with the people in our lives and certainly with our children if we have children. But like most things, it is something that we can have some control over and that we can change as well and that's important to note. Again, really, it's just coming back to those patterns, isn't it? It's looking for those patterns and I really like what you just said about looking at the incidents because we do behave differently in different situations and it's interesting to note what happens for us when we're under stress. How do we behave then versus how do we behave when things are going really well or how are we at work versus home or, you know, lots of different scenarios to see what it is that's coming up for us in those moments. Mm. The recognition of those parts of us that are responding in various situations, if we're responding in a way that is not helpful to us or the people that we're engaged with, those patterns are almost always an emotional response that was activated in childhood Sometimes clients will come in and say, I don't know what it is, I'm okay about this situation everywhere else, but as soon as I see my mother, and we'll have a conversation about the fact that, well, your mother is going to press your buttons because she installed them, or your dad or your other caregiver, but that's where those buttons are put in place. And so when we go back and understand those patterns, we are in a much better place to be able to consciously recognise that old patterning and tell ourselves, I don't have to keep reacting that way. Now that I'm conscious of it, I have a choice here about whether I choose to do that thing that I usually do that usually ends up in that particular place or I can choose to try something different and see where that lands me. And it takes me back to that quote in lots of ways you know, ways of being and the way our parents model behaviour, which is what you said before, we follow that modelling. And it really is only becoming aware of it and going through the pain or the healing that we're able to make those choices to do things differently. But that sets up the next generation to therefore do things differently as well. And that can be the way we communicate our responses to stress, how we process emotions, whether we punish in relationships, whether we give people the silent treatment, whether we're open, our preparedness to be vulnerable, all of those factors have their basis in childhood and the way we're raised in those families of origin. Just going back to that need for connection over almost everything else, it's so interesting that for so much of our adulthood too, we can hold on to this parent-pleasing type of behaviour, you know, wanting recognition or acknowledgement or something from our parents. And that in my experience, that's very often a part of the work that happens in therapy around family of origin work too, is getting to the point where someone might say 
it's okay that I'll never get that. And that that is extremely freeing from patterns of behaviour because we develop patterns in order to get what we want from our parents. Whatever it is, love is the bottom line, I guess. And it can be hard to stop enacting those patterns until we can let go of that desire for the unreachable thing. I think that's right. And I think the recognition that, you know, we might register that we're not going to get it from our mum. So then we look for it from our boss or we look for it from our lover or we look for it from that friend who we really admire. And so that search may go on until again we recognise that we are looking for that same thing, love, connection, validation, whatever it happens to be. But I think ultimately the ideal is that you are in a place where you give that to yourself when you are able to affirm yourself, recognise, hey, I did a really good job there, I feel really proud of myself. Mm, Okay, I stuffed up there, what can I do to redress that? It's okay that I did. It's really around that sense of self-worth, isn't it? Because... We don't always, when we're growing up, receive from our caregivers a sense that we are worthy or that we deserve the love that we're so desperately looking for. And so when we recognise the problems that occurred in the family of origin and where maybe we got tripped up and where those things were lacking for us to really grow into an autonomous, fully functioning, emotional, thoughtful, connected human... And we stop searching for that acknowledgement from others and we start to realise that the only person really who is going to be there all the time but also who's privy to all of that, I mean, we're the only person who knows all the internal machinations that go on, all the moments that we try, all the moments that we don't try, moments where we choose to say something that is maybe biting or nasty when we could have chosen to speak with love. And so when we make decisions about the way we're going to be, we can start really affirming that. And I think, you know, when we do that, connection naturally flows with others anyway. You know, when you're really connected to self, then connections with other people are pretty effortless. Absolutely. That's the goal, I think, that really healthy relationship with the self. Coming back to that first question that's why as therapists, that's where we always go because whatever those issues are that we're having, whether they're things in our relationship with ourselves or they're frustrations in career or things not working out, a lot of them have got their basis, even if it's a belief system, in those early years. And if we can track back to the source, we are in a position to be able to change or heal or adjust so that we're not carrying that stuff with us. Absolutely. I think that's probably a really great place to end this episode and it's, it'll be a great lead into what we go on to talk about in our next episode on Families of Origin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Soulful Insights. Follow us for more content and feel free to reach out and let us know if there's anything you'd like to hear on a future episode.